This is American Resistance, a mini-series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkoff's latest book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Hello and welcome to American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation, a special mini-series from the DSR Network. I'm David Rothkoff, your host and the author of the new book, American Resistance, on which this series is based. Each week for uh, this six-week period, we will present to you a special guest with whom I spoke during the preparation of the book, who can speak to the core issues it addresses, how government professionals, career officials, and appointees put their oaths of office out of party loyalty and repeatedly staved off disaster during the Trump years, or at least attempted to. My guest for this episode is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, U.S. Army retired, former National Security Council staffer, the man whose courageous testimony about the Trump shakedown of the Zelensky government in Ukraine led to the first impeachment, author of Here Right Matters, and to be candid about it, another of those whose actions and conversations with me ultimately inspired me to write the book. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, that's uh, that's a, that's a good background. But uh, the fact that I could be an inspiration for for this undertaking is uh, is meaningful. So I, I appreciate you saying that. It's certainly true. Of all the people who are associated with the idea at the core of this book, you may be one of those who comes first to mind for people because you, who many people did not know prior to the impeachment summoned a great deal of courage, stepped forward because of the values that you have, and said, no, what happened here was wrong, and presented it to the Congress, presented it to the public, led to the impeachment of the President of the United States, also led you to lose your job. I mean, it had a, had a cost to it, but I think it inspired a lot of people, and I think it exemplifies how a single voice or an individual or small group of individuals could have an enormous impact. And of course, one of the things that I discovered in doing this book is this was happening across the government in a variety of different kinds of ways with regards to elections, Russia, war and peace, COVID, immigration, and so forth. The place I'd like to begin is, what do you think of the thesis? How important is it that the public get their arms around this idea. Well, I think there is a fundamental notion in here that if it's understood, strengthens democracy. If it's misunderstood or underappreciated, it weakens democracy and it feeds apathy and complacency. It's this notion that an individual doesn't make a difference. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think a single person could make a difference. In my case, it took an accumulation of many, many experiences to get to the White House, to be in a position to, frankly, hold the line for democracy. But in some cases, it might be more transactional, people just casting a vote. But I think it's fundamental to the notion of a functional democracy for us to be able to convince people, remind people that they matter in a democratic system, and they, they can make a difference, whether that's, again, through casting a vote or through upholding values and ethics and kind of supporting our institutions. So I think it's a brilliant thesis. 
I think a lot of people were moved when they heard your testimony and you talked about your own origins. I have to say, I don't think anybody fully appreciated at the time how significant coming from studying being involved in Ukraine or this case affecting Ukraine would ultimately be. But even before we get to that, you know, you talked about the values that were inculcated in you by your family. And that really strikes me as real important. You know, you, I think you've just finished your PhD and you've been. I submitted the first draft and I already got my uh, feedback. So now it's basically the last press to make the the corrections and submit it probably, you know, within the, the month. So, but it's, it's a, the turning in the full draft draft was a major milestone. Sorry. I guess I, you know, it's a point of pride. So I, I, uh, turning in the first draft was a big milestone, making these corrections, uh, and getting it kind of approved for defense that'll happen, you know, somewhat shortly. And then the defense itself. So I'm well underway here. Well, I, I congratulate you with that, but you know, when you go and you study and you get advanced degrees and you study things like political science, you study how foreign governments work. There's a lot of talk of things like process and policy and politics. But at the end of the day, my experience and all the books that I've written and work in Washington for 35 years and in doing this book is that at the end of the day, it's people that matter. And in particular, it's character that matters. It matters that you and your brother were you know, invested with this here right matters concept and the character of the people around you in the white house flawed and 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 not flawed is you know in my view what shaped that period in history more than any other single factor and i was just wondering what your your sense of that was you know i guess the first thing that came to mind is like the, you know that whole the, the fact that i have a cast phrase is kind of surreal the value of here right matters is probably layered it's I think it's about the United States and that, that this country is unique and worth kind of preserving and uh, preserving this this idea of progress towards a more perfect union. I think that's part of it. I think there's also the personal component of here, right? Matters that you, as you alluded to, that my father and my military service and my background kind of instilled that, you know, it should matter to me as, as an individual. And I certainly talk about the fact that the, the context, the weighty context of the threat to democracy of, of a stolen election, the threat of basically feeding the beast here in the case of Russia, the fact that this would somehow, well, actually, it probably very well did plant the seeds of Putin's major offensive against Russia, that whole impeachment and the fact that the president of the United States was prepared to cast aside national, U.S. national security for personal gain and then proceed to kind of sow discord. All these things kind of all, all came together for me somehow. I think the simply American resistance probably is a, is a compilation of folks that were in certain ways like-minded because, again, defending the United States mattered and they had, they had the strength of character to do the right thing. And that's what the story is. It's, it's really about you know, maybe folks that are somewhat idealistic and prepared to bear the, the personal cost of, of some of these actions, because the act of resistance, especially against the powerful force of Trumpism, uh, is going to come with some severe consequences. 
And I think that was kind of uh, knowable to a lot of people. I called it American resistance because it was a good title, but a lot of people were pushing back on abuses and things that would have hurt the country. And, uh, you know, I have this subtitle, which is the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation, which produced, by the way, some objection from some of the people <laughs> I talked to who said, yeah, well, you know, but my, my point is to sort of to, uh, to deflate this idea of deep state because, you know, the vast majority of people who work in the government, the vast majority of the permanent government, civil servants, foreign service officers, military officers, intelligence officers, and so forth, are dedicated public servants. And the idea of vilifying them, which is now being carried forward with, uh, you know, this whole Schedule F idea and some of these other ideas that are out there, is extremely dangerous because they do provide a check against abuse of authority. But for somebody raised up in the military, where following orders is essential, essential to military discipline and and effectiveness, you know, it does get right to the core question. You know, the core question is, when is disobeying an order? When is calling out a superior in the chain of command more loyal than following the order or following what they say? And I just, I thought it'd be useful to hear you talk about how you grappled with that. I guess I was fortunate in certain ways. First of all, I was in a a lofty position as a director on the National Security Council. I had this powerful national security apparatus and process in place where I could pull this corruption out of the shadows in a lot of ways and make, you know, when the scheme first kind of uh, coming uh, started coming through unofficial channels, I put pushed pulled it into, you know, the, the what we know as as the national security process. You know the the meetings at the deputy assistant, assistant secretary, deputies and, and principals and all that kind of stuff. So I had that, the wherewithal to take some sort of action, even though uh, I was still in the big scheme of things, a kind of a, a relatively low level bureaucrat, uh, policymaker. And I also, because of the position, really didn't have to do, I didn't have to go to, I didn't have to make some of these hard decisions. I managed to avoid some of the hard decisions about when it's time to go to the press or when it's time to go to non-classified channels. I did this through official channels. I did every, all my actions were through official channels and the process worked in my case. It may have not worked on the first time I I told, let's say a guy like John Eisenberg, he kind of dismissed it, but in my coordination with other- He was the NSC lawyer. He was the lawyer. He was was supposed to provide oversight. But in coordinating the the you know the fact that this these events unfolded, I was able to start a process that ended up getting to oversight in the in the house through these committees. So in a way, I I don't know how I would respond when I exhausted all of the official recourse and had to go to resort to uh, to unofficial channels. I actually also knew that you know there were limits to how far I was going to go. I was not going to do anything illegal. I know that there were going to be things I was going to have to do that were unpleasant. It's the, it was the Trump White House. I thought I could be, I was well positioned to hold the line on principle. I was going in there under the auspices of what was the national security strategy that had set parameters on how we we're going to operate with regards to Russia, Ukraine, and so, so forth. And uh, I, there, were, there were things I might not have liked, but were not unlawful. 
but there was no way I was going to do something that was going to be, that was going to weaken, undermine our democracy and participate in a, in a corrupt scheme, an extortion scheme, frankly, to uh, tip the scales in, in uh, Trump's favor. So I, I had kind of a conceptual guardrail in mind. And part of that was adherence to, to army values and my own uh, code of conduct. Well, I think that, you know, that's a, an important part of the story, because even as I've talked to some people about this, they'll say, isn't this pushback to the president contrary to the interests of American people or contrary to the views of the voters? But of course, there are laws. And, uh, you know, such as the law that says that if the Congress allocates funds to Ukraine, they have to be dispersed. And there are also legal processes, such as the legal process by which whistleblowers operate, and your view was corroborated by that of a whistleblower, which was, again, another way to work through channels. And these are all, these are all manner of guardrails that exist within this system. But one of the things that a lot of people I talked about was, talked to, said was, after you, after some of these experiences, Trump and the people around him started to get wise, and they started to say, well, look, we've got to dismantle these. We've got to put people in who are blindly loyal. This whole Schedule F thing is, let's, let's fire, be able to fire 50,000 people, because people who follow the law might not follow the boss's orders. And from be, having been inside, is that something that you feared might happen? It is something I feared uh, might happen. As a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons I shed my deep apprehension about being involved in U.S. politics and was so quick, about four weeks later, I did a Lester, uh, you know, maybe six weeks later, I did a Lester Holt interview for NBC Nightly News. I did a, v- a video with Vote Vets and, and uh, Lincoln Project. The reason I did that was because I felt the, the dangers, the, the felt the perils of what a second administration would mean with Donald Trump. And how you know those remaining guardrails could would be would be destroyed, and we would potentially be we could see a situation where our democracy unwound. So I think that's exactly inside government. You're bound by the rules and regulations. One of the things that the president made an error about is by forcing me out. I was no longer bound by those rules and regulations. I was no longer you know subject to shut up and color. Uh, and, you know, operating within those parameters. And I was going to use my voice to alert the American people to the dangers of a Trump administration. And I was going to do that to the most effective way possible to avoid the loss of our democracy. Well, you know, I, I just I, I know our time is limited here. And I do want to sort of build a bridge from all of that to sort of where we are. I think one of the things that's clear is that we were in no position to understand quite the implications of, of what we were dealing with there. You were, because you'd been studying this. But the average American, when they were listening to the impeachment, didn't know where Ukraine was, didn't know what Ukraine was, and didn't know what its significance was, or withhold the significance of withholding support for Ukraine was. Now we've moved, you know, fast forward a couple of years, and providing steady stream of support to Ukraine is kind of the most essential, central element of U.S. national security policy for the moment, because the standoff 
between a kind of demented Putin, you know, struggling to remain relevant, and the free, democratically elected government of of Ukraine, is become emblematic of the big struggles of our era, and will define how that goes in the future. Um, to what extent do you think there were other people in the U.S. government when you were doing this that understood the stakes? And I'm just, you know, interested. I, you know, I would say not a lot, but frankly, I not only did I understand the stakes, I understood that the American people wouldn't understand the stakes. So when when my testimony was not necessarily about Ukraine, I think that's what distinguished me from one of my some of my colleagues. They kind of couched it as how is this important to Ukraine? To me, I tried to couch it as why is Ukraine essential to U.S. national security? That was the, the that was the story I tried to to kind of unfold what this might mean for a vulnerable Ukraine that doesn't enjoy the support of the of the United States and how it could be an enticement for Putin to la- launch a large scale war. That was the perception that I kind of it had even back then. I mean, I was also deeply concerned about our own democracy in the United States and what would what it would mean. I would say. This is this is kind of gets closer to my doctoral thesis. We underestimated Russia as a threat. We underestimated Ukraine as a partner. We put put way too much stock in in a relationship with Russia based on hopes, aspirations for a cooperative relationship, and fears the devolution of uh, avoiding the devolution towards a cold war. And at the same time, didn't realize that part of the way we avoid regional instability is by hardening states like Ukraine. We didn't do that in the 90s sufficiently. We did it even less in the 2000s. Now, there are a whole host of reasons. There are some justifications for this policy. But certainly by the time you get into the 2000, by past the 2014 era, was a pretty significant oversight that we didn't realize the dangers and how this was going to unfold. We started to focus on great power competition and Russia and China as the threats but didn't resource the the strategies to to avoid worst case scenarios. And under the Trump administration, you know, we may have had even a reasonably good strategy, the national security strategy and the national security strategy for Russia. But everything that the president did, or Trump did, undermine that strategy, weakened the United States, enticed Putin to believe that there was opportunity and profit in uh, aggression towards Ukraine. So it's a it's a really long story that goes back many, many years. I think the 90s, you could almost excuse as optimism, post-Soviet optimism. But by the time you get to 2000s and the, and the relationship with Putin, we got played pretty hard. It's absolutely true. I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and, and there were some unintended consequences that turned out okay. You know, I think the response of the Obama administration to what happened in 2014 was less than it should have been. And the debate about what we should do for Ukraine was about less than it should have been. But there was one thing that we started to do because we didn't want to take stronger action, and that was train Ukrainians uh, in the military. And that has turned out to have been hugely beneficial in the context. It has. Of the- I mean, there are other things we did. I think, frankly, we undertook a kind of diplomacy back in 2014 to 
start to rally around Russia as a threat. We had, if we have a shared values and interests with a lot of our European partners in NATO, we definitely didn't have shared threat perceptions. So we started to kind of close the gap on threat perceptions, even in the absence of, uh, of a, uh, like a leader in the form of President Trump. We still started to kind of, we had a, a, a convergence of threat perceptions in certain ways, even though we didn't do anywhere near enough to warn off Russia. But there were some things we did that helped and, you know, armed Ukraine. Armed, actually, in this case, is not really with weapons because we really didn't, we didn't arm them, but uh, provide Ukraine with the, the tools to, to resist effectively and, frankly, just destroy uh, the Russian military. That's what they've done. They've destroyed the Russian military. Yeah, extraordinary set of developments, obviously. Bill Taylor, who briefly succeeded Masha Ivanovich as our head of mission in Ukraine during this period of, of some tumult, used uh, referred to the official government and the unofficial government. You know, he said the official government, the ambassador, the channels, the State Department, state, you know, NSC processes you talked about, you know, operated the way it sort of normally did. But there was this unofficial government, the Rudy Giuliani and the Sandberg and the other kind of back channels going up to the president that didn't follow any rules at all, and that this became part of the crux of the problem. And then, of course, it was compounded by the fact that everything you just said about Ukraine, I don't think President Trump still knows to this day. I mean, he just didn't show any interest in that. Am I overstating that or no? It was a blessing. I mean, honestly, for the first year almost, the president's disinterest in certainly Ukraine provided a huge amount of latitude in or in, in crafting a pretty good policy on hardening elections, on, on building a relationship with Zelensky. It wasn't until President Biden announced his bid for the 2020 elections that, you know, that's when when Trump got interested in Ukraine because he saw it as a as a lever in which to tarnish Biden. But up until that point, he was really largely disinterested. Now, he, he, want, he didn't really want a particularly aggressive policy against Russia. The national security strategy provided enough cover for us to continue to ratchet up sanctions and to take some actions on countering Russian malign influence. But he didn't want anything kind of overtly harming his relationship with his buddy Putin. But his disinterest was hugely, it probably allowed us to have a somewhat normal national security policy. Because if he was interested, if he, for, for any consistent period of time, took an interest in uh, national security policy, he could have shaped it in a way that could have been really harmful to U.S. national security. But he only took interest in things that were useful to him, self-service. And therefore, he had, you know, he, that means a lot of things that didn't, didn't really need his attention or didn't get his attention. And uh, other, the, the folks that were the adults in the room were managed to, managed to kind of conduct a reasonable policy. Do you worry that uh big shift in in the politics on Capitol Hill in November or big shift in 2024 could produce a reversal and uh, a weakening of support for Ukraine? So I if there were a big shift, it that would absolutely happen. There is no no doubt that you know a Trump coming back would kind of destroy all the support we have for Ukraine. Uh, I think if there was a large shift in the Congress, both House and Senate, that would happen. 
uh, as uh, as folks attempted to pander to him. I just don't think it's going to happen. I am not being. Uh, I don't think I'm being. There's a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, Trump is is deeply damaged. He appeals to less and less people. I think there's a much greater danger from a DeSantis-like figure that's much smarter and uh, you know, but equally kind of dastardly. I don't. I'm not as concerned about this the Senate at this point. It looks like we're able to even maybe pick up a seat or two. And the House, because of Republican overreach, now looks there's a path to victory. I think there's actually, we may very well get a big surprise in this election in almost exactly a month from now with a lot of energized voters, a lot of new, new registered, newly registered voters showing up to vote. And I think that the margins, or if, if the Republicans win, it'll be by thin margins, which also tamps down on on kind of major shifts in policy because you could you could peel off you know some some number of uh, reasonable Republicans the few that remain, but I I'm optimistic based on uh, you know maybe a lot of anecdotal evidence some hard data on the new registrants Rachel my wife's activities you know going out to Michigan Ohio Pennsylvania North Carolina and and talking to to women, women that were not politically engaged, I think that we're 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 might be in for a pleasant surprise. Well, I hope you're right. You've been uh, prescient in a couple of other areas, so I'm gonna. I'm, gonna... I'm better on foreign policy than domestic policy, so don't get over, don't get your hopes up too high. I, I, uh, I I'm, I'm, I'm gonna hope for it. I'm gonna hope for it anyway. I, you know, I do think that, you know, you said something earlier, which. I think I echo in the in the, in the book and is a good place to close, which is, I think in in regard to your case, even though you know ultimately you lost your job as a result of it, and even though Trump was not convicted by the Senate, to a large extent the system worked. The money got released to Ukraine. The blackmail got exposed. The message got sent to Trump and those around him that they could not act with impunity. And if you're right about where American politics is going, I think it was the first or, or, you know, particularly given the kind of way that the Mueller thing got played out, the probably the first real time that the brakes were pumped on the abuses of the president. So everybody owes you a debt of gratitude, and uh, I do too for this this book, and I'm I'm very grateful, and um, I hope you'll come back on our podcast at some point when your dissertation is. Are you going to turn your dissertation into books? Yep. So we'll come we'll come back and we'll talk about that. But in the meantime, take care of yourself. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye bye.